0: I must say, when I looked at these passages, I thought, how am I going to tie these all together? Uh, And so I decided not to. Uh, And we're going to focus on Paul this morning. Although, in listening to the readings this morning, I realized that there is this theme of unconditional love that is woven throughout. So maybe there is a connection. As I was waiting for the service to begin in the back and listening to your voices and the music, I got a text from someone sharing a Facebook page with me, and it was a picture of the Apostle Paul, and the caption across the top said, If Paul were alive today, and then you see Paul's words saying, Grace and peace to you, to the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America and Canada. I don't know where to begin with you guys. This morning I want to invite you to reflect on your life and mine and ask yourself, When was the last time that you admitted to yourself or to others that you were wrong? Being wrong is inevitable, despite our best efforts and intentions. However, making mistakes, being wrong, is usually pretty hard to digest. And so often we save face and double down on our mistakes rather than face them. Our confirmation bias overwhelms us and we only see evidence to confirm what we already believe. We, in effect, say my mind is made up, don't confuse me with facts. Psychologists call this cognitive-mental dissonance. The stress we experience when we're confronted by two contradictory thoughts or actions, beliefs, opinions, or attitude. So, for example, if I see myself as a kind and fair person, But then I cut someone off and I give them the finger and I deny my error and I insist that the other driver should be more aware because I had the right of way, even though he got to the intersection before I did. (laughs) My sense of self is threatened. And when it is, I either modify my sense of self or I accept the new evidence. (laughs) And guess which option I prefer? We can even justify as humans things that are absurd. In the 1950s, psychologist Leon Fettinger studied a small religious group who believed that a flying saucer would rescue its members from a predicted apocalypse on December the 20th, 1954. When it didn't happen, they simply said their prayers resulted in God deciding to spare everyone and the world. And prayer became an excuse to not look at the facts. To accept that they were wrong was too uncomfortable. Now surprisingly, research has shown that it can feel good to stick to your guns. A study in the European Journal of Mental Health or Social Psychology found that people who refused to apologize after a mistake had more self-esteem and felt more in control and powerful than those who did not refuse. However, this self-esteem was very short-term and almost had an addictive effect because they had to find some other place to justify their actions, to get that same high of self-esteem. Because an apology or an admission of wrongness also gives a short-term feeling of power to the recipient of that apology. If I apologize to my spouse, I risk that apology. That that apology gives her power to choose whether she will forgive me and alleviate my shame or increase my shame by holding a grudge or reminding me of it constantly. This cycle will only extend conflict and add fuel to my anger and defensiveness and encourage retaliation. As one researcher said, we cling to old ways of doing things— even when new ways are better and healthier and smarter, we cling to self defeating beliefs long past their shelf life. And we make our partners, coworkers, parents, and kids really, really mad at us. And that's why Dr. Phil's repeated question is so poignant Is what you're doing working for you? No. Well, then why do you keep doing it? And with this reluctance to admit when we're wrong in our awareness this morning, I want to look at what is called the conversion of Paul. Biblically and historically, this is almost seen as a prototypical conversion or certainly a most dramatic of conversion experiences. In fact, many of us read this conversion of Saul story or listen to other dramatic conversion stories and can be internally tempted by a faith inferiority complex. For many of us, all we can say is, well, I was raised in the church, and I never knew a time when I was not a Christian. There's something comforting about our story until we compare it with these dramatic stories and this one in Acts. And we may end up saying, even though I never had a Damascus Road experience like Paul, I still believe God has been at work in my life, but it still can feel like a bit of a faith inferiority. And yet we know that it shouldn't be about a competition for conversions that are the most dramatic. So why was Paul's conversion so dramatic? Perhaps for some of us, Or perhaps because for some of us, it takes a lot more light to dispel the darkness, as it did for Paul. For others of us, the light dawns on us slowly and shines throughout our lives, clarifying, enlarging, changing our outlook and actions of our faith. And eventually it was Paul who said, my strength is made perfect in that awareness of my weakness. My faith is stronger because I was able to admit when I was wrong. And his weakness in our story required a lot more light before he understood the dissonance, the tension between his beliefs and his actions. As William Mule, a professor at Dale Divinity School, said, The roads to Christian faith are as various as the people who profess them. So conversion might be more a process than a moment in time. It's more like, once I was blind, but now I see, well, at least a little more than I did before. And in our faith inferiority, we may find ourselves thinking, why hasn't this dramatic experience happened to me? Does God have favorites? Am I just coasting along? However, if we look at this conversion story in new ways, I want to suggest we might understand that the main character in this or any conversion story is not Paul. It's not us. It's God. And like Paul, we have all been on paths that have been injurious to ourselves and injurious to others. We might have right beliefs, but we still have done some harmful actions. We've all been preoccupied with our own agendas, being stubborn, blinded by our own ambitions, our selfishness, and caught in the repetitive, addictive behavior, often obvious or oblivious of how these actions are affecting us and others. And that didn't necessarily change it because we were saved. Some examples of what this light might confront And a warning, there may be some triggers for us here. The single-minded business person who is so determined to get ahead that they lose their marriage. The child who is so angry and hurt that they can't or won't forgive a parent. The the person whose emotions are so locked up that they can't express their love for their spouse. The ever-pleasing wife or husband who is so accommodating as to allow her husband's alcoholism to destroy their children, the former lover who revengefully would rather do harm than seek reconciliation, the employer whose cultural values prejudice him against minorities, women, or LGBTQ persons, the partisan political leader incapable of compromise, the sports hero incapable of sporting behavior, the demanding parent who cannot give their child a break. And on this and many other levels, we all have been on the wrong path. This is the human condition, as it was for Paul. Yes, his beliefs were somewhat adjusted, but in the blinding light, he had a relational encounter with the cosmic Christ, and he was forever changed. But what's most significant to me than the change in his belief was the change in his actions, a huge change. He'd always believed in God. He'd always believed in justice. He'd always believed in truth. He'd always believed in the perfect law of God. He believed in his faith heritage. He believed in the inspiration of his scriptures. He even believed that a Messiah would come. And yet those beliefs led him into actions of persecution, described as breathing threats and murder, of deciding who was wrong and who was right. And this belief system somehow gave him permission to marginalize, torture, and kill. And so perhaps we need to ask a different question when our beliefs bump up against our questions or the facts question or threaten our beliefs. Might a better question be, if I adopt this belief, will that enlarge and broaden my concept of God as a God of love? Or does it limit my concept of a God of love? Paul's concept of a God of love was very limited. Before this, light from heaven dawned on him and brought him to his knees. Does my fight for freedom broaden everyone's freedom or only mine? Or my religions? Or my political party? Or my country? And so, for Paul, an encounter with the Christ enlightened the beliefs he already had, and his concept of God was dramatically enlarged in his beliefs, but even more dramatic in his actions. He was now doing the exact opposite of what he had been doing before. And yet he still believed in God, justice, truth, his faith heritage, the inspiration of the scriptures, etc. All the things that he had believed before. But now they were held within a container of unconditional love. He became saved from the erroneous application of his beliefs. Might that be more what it means to get saved? We move in the direction of being saved from from the harmful actions of our beliefs. Beliefs never save us, even correct beliefs. Look at the history of Christianity or any religion. How many correct beliefs have led us into destructive decisions, actions, violence? And whether we look at Paul's seeming dramatic conversion or our own relatively undramatic journey, at times we have all been on the wrong path. And so this is not a story of an almost unbelievable conversion. It's a description of our ordinary lives. And so perhaps for Paul, as it was for Paul and for us this morning, the harder question is, what was and perhaps still is your blinding light? What causes you to question and adjust your sense of reality? What finally led you or is leading you to see where your addictive behaviors were taking you? Where were you wrong in the application of your beliefs? Was it a friend who took the risk of confronting you? Or a loved one who was courageous enough to tell you the truth? (laughs) Or perhaps the vacuum in your own soul? that woke you up in the middle of the night asking difficult questions. These can't all be blinding lights, but let's be gentle with ourselves. Sometimes it's only in the past tense that we can see the divine hand in our lives. As the poet said, I took the road less traveled and that has made all the difference. So I want to suggest that conversion happens all the time and continues to happen throughout our lives. We are all walking this Damascus road, breathing threats and destruction against ourselves and one another. And Paul, like us, was converted and yet in some areas remains stubborn and blind. And And in this conversion process, we must continually ask, How might our cultural bias be blinding us, and where is the Divine Spirit calling us to breathe life and invitation and love? So I invite all of us to notice and reflect on those places and beliefs, that if we were to adopt them and translate them into our actions, they would make God bigger. This will always be reflected in our actions, regardless of our beliefs. Our faith tells us that God is a God of love, a God of love. In fact, it also says God is love. And Richard Rohr emphasizes this by suggesting that God is not a noun. I was taught that nouns are persons, places, or things. Persons, places, or things have a shelf life. They eventually come to an end. He suggests that God is a verb, not a noun. And he describes that verb as loving action in the world. God is loving action in the world. And so if that is true, then conversion is a process of translating our beliefs into loving actions in the world, in our own lives. And as we do this, we are saved. And then the question we need to ask each and every day is, What is saving me today? Where is loving action in the world saving me today? And this was the doorway provided by Paul's Damascus Road experience. He moved more and more into aligning his actions with his beliefs in this crucible of love, expressed beautifully and most clearly in that favorite chapter, the love chapter of 1 Corinthians. It isn't telling us how to love. This is telling us how our actions will change as we let ourselves be loved by God. This is how God loves. Not just as a belief, but as an action. Loving action in the world. Listen to these words in that context. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant, or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Period. One absolute. And the chapter ends with, Now remain three things. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love. Why? It's the only one that's eternal. Faith and hope are temporal. They're something to see us through this time of life into the kingdom. Love never ends. All the rest is relative. Amen.